بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته اللهم انفعنا بما علمتنا وعلمنا ما ينفعنا وارزقنا علما تنفعنا به آمين رب العالمين الحمد لله ثم الحمد لله We continuing once again with اللؤلؤ المكنون the cherished pearls of the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Last week, we spoke about the, the relationship between Khadija radiallahu anha and the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and what happened on his journey as a, as a businessman on behalf of Khadija and then what happened after that wherein they got married and so forth. The next a topic that the author, rahimahullah, he mentions is Bina'ul Ka'bati wa Daru'u Fitnatin Azimah. It is the building of the Kaaba and a prevention of a great fitna. The prevention of a great fitna. Um, so the Kaaba, we know, is the house of Allah Azza wa Jal, and it, it was the first. House of Allah Azza wa Jal that was placed on this dunya. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says in Surah Ali Imran, إِنَّ أَوَّلَ بَيْتٍ وُضِعَ لِلنَّاسِ لَلَّذِي بِبَكَّةَ مُبَارَكَ وَهُدًا لِلْعَالَمِينَ That indeed the first house, the first bait that was placed for humanity is the one in Makkah or Bakkah as the Quran mentions. It's Mubarakan, blessed, and a guidance for Al-Alameen. And also a hadith in Sahih, Muslim and Bukhari, from Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu, who said, I said to the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Ya Rasulallah, Ayyu masjidin wudi'a fil ardi awwalu? What was the first masjid that was placed on this earth? Qala al-masjidul haram. And he said it was al-masjidul haram. So this was the first house of Allah, جل, the first masjid that was uh, built upon this earth. However, over time, after it was built by Ibrahim السلام, and his son Ismail السلام, we know the famous story. Over time, what had happened was is the Kaaba is a building. It's a structure after all. Like all structures, it has wear and tear. Right? Over time, it becomes weaker. And there were some problems within the foundation of the Kaaba that had happened, which caused it to become unstable. It caused the structure to become unstable. And the walls were starting to crack. The walls of the Kaaba were seen to be starting to, to crack. And this was now about five years before prophethood. Five years before prophethood, um, Mecca experienced... A huge flood. Mecca then experienced, this was already the condition of the Kaaba. Then Mecca experienced a, a huge flood. Whereby powerful, you know, flood, flooding happened. Where the water flowed and gushed directly to the, to Al-Bayt Al-Haram. To Masjid Al-Haram. Right? And into the Kaaba. Causing the Kaaba to become on the verge of caving in basically. Did not cave in, but it was on the verge of caving in. It was already not in a good state. 
And after this floods came, it was on the verge of caving in. And also previous, or before this had happened, the Kaaba was also burnt. The Kaaba had also been burnt. There was a woman who came with incense to, to you know, with coals. As they bring like Bukhur, like you see today, something similar. She came to, to apply scent to the Kaaba and ended up burning the Kaaba. So the Kaaba had been through, you know, usual wear and tear of a building. And secondly, this floods and also the, the burning of it had happened. So the Kaaba was Radman Fawqal Qamati. That's how it's described, which means it was a basic supported structure. Radman means it was blocked up. It's a basic structure that was blocked up with no cement, no mortar, no nothing. Just blocks on top of each other. This is how it eventually became. And so this then forced the hand of the Quraysh. The Quraysh, remember, they understood this is Al-Bayt Al-Haram. This is Masjid Al-Haram. They knew the sanctity and the sacredness of the Haram and of the Kaaba specifically. So obviously by seeing this in the Kaaba in this state, they were then forced to renew the building of the Kaaba. They were then forced to renew the building of the Kaaba due to the status of the Kaaba. To preserve the sanctity and the status of the Kaaba, they had to then rebuild the Kaaba. And so the Quraysh agreed that no money would be used to build this Kaaba except money that was pure. Except money that was pure to them. Remember, these were people that we spoke about. They were, they were people who indulged in the riba and in various things. They would go and some of them had women that they would work for, like brothels, you know, and they would earn money through these women. None of this money would then be used for the building of the Kaaba. You only bring your halal income, your pure income, and this is what they had an agreement over. So any riba monies, not accepted. Any money that was brought about through anything haram, not accepted. Understand? So this was the agreement that they, that they placed. Then they came, and the first thing you have to do before rebuilding is, you have to demolish. So they came to demolish the Kaaba. Then what happened? They became reluctant. They stepped back. And they feared that if we are going to do this, some harm might then afflict us. Allah might punish us. Because majority of these Qurayshis, what had they witnessed before? What is causing them to fear? Huh? What's causing them to fear? They witnessed the happening of the elephant. They witnessed Abraha coming with the elephants and all of this huge army to destroy the Kaaba. And what happened? We know the story. So they knew this is the house of Allah. And they were fearful that if we are going to demolish this Kaaba, what had happened to that army might just happen to us once as well. You understand? So Al-Walid ibn Al-Mughira, Walid ibn Al-Mughira Al-Makhzumi, he speaks up and he says to the Quraysh, do you intend to destroy this Kaaba or to demolish the Kaaba for a good reason or for an evil reason? And they said, of course, it is for a, a good reason to, to fix it up. That's our intention. The opposite of Abraha, 
Our intention is good. And so Walid says, Inna allaha la yuhlikul muslihin. Allah is not going to destroy people who are looking to bring about goodness. So he takes the axe and he starts to, to demolish the Kaaba. Walid ibn al-Mughira. And so he says to the rest of them, stand up, come and help me. Come, let's assist me, let's, 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 let's do it. And then they said no. Again, the reluctance was there, the fear was there. And so they said no, we will wait until tomorrow. We will wait until tomorrow. And we are going to see if anything happens to Walid. If anything happens to Walid today or tomorrow or overnight, we are going to leave it as it is. And if nothing happens to him, then that means Allah is pleased with him and his actions, and then we will join him. This was the Quraysh. And so, Walid, the next night and the next morning, nothing happened to him. And they joined him, and they started to, to demolish the Kaaba. And they used to say, Oh Allah, we do not want anything but good. Reminding each other, and, and you know, out of this fear for Allah, they kept on saying, Oh Allah, we do not want anything but good. We are not doing this for any bad reason, for any bad intentions. We only want goodness. Until they came to the foundation of the Kaaba. Until they came to the foundation. The foundation which was built by Ibrahim alayhi salam. When they got there, they reached a greenish stone. That is described like, the, like, a, like a hump on a camel's back. Like a hump on a camel's back. The reason it's described like this is because it was part of the foundation but also, you know, standing out. Bulging out, as we would say, sticking out. So it was like part of the foundation, but also above the foundation. So they reached this type of stone, which was greenish in color. And so a man comes and he, from the Quraysh of course, and he tries to knock off the stone. Eventually he comes with an atala. An atala is a crowbar. He comes with a crowbar to dig the stone out. You understand? To to get that stone out. Because the intention was not to demolish the, the foundation. Just the top part which had become weak. They were then built from the, from the foundation up. But this stone was now problematic. Right? So what they did was he came with a crowbar and he tried to remove the stone. And when he did this, the stone started to shake. Until the whole of Makkah shook. The whole of Makkah with, with its people shook tremendously. And then they all stepped back. They knew that we're not going to touch. So they left the stone as it is. And the author then mentions that all of the noble people of the Quraysh took part in this. They were all part of this, this, this action or this um, task of rebuilding the Kaaba. And all of the tribes, they came forth and they were divided amongst each other. Each one, you know, standing at a different point around the Kaaba. And he mentions all of the different um, tribes. And he says, for example, by the door, there was Abdi Manaf, Bani Abdi Manaf, and Zuhra. And between the Rukun Al-Aswad and the Rukun Yamani, right, was Libani Makhzum. And other tribes of the Quraysh joined them in that area. So like this, they split up the task, you understand? 
different tribes came to different sides and their noble men came and they this was their they, they took the responsibility of rebuilding the Kaaba. Um, and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he was a part of this. He was, how old was he? He was 35 years old. We said five years between, sorry, five years before prophethood this happened, which makes him 35 years old. Because at 40 he becomes a prophet. So he's 35 years old and he helps his uncles fulfill this job. Right, he is now helping them, carrying the stones, and so forth. Then he mentions a hadith in Bukhari and Muslim from Jabir ibn Abdullah He says that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was carrying some stones and some rocks. <coughs> and all he had on was his izar. What's an izar? The, the, the waist wrapper, right? That they wrap around the bottom. So Abbas, his uncle, Al-Abbas, his uncle says, Oh my nephew, if you remove your izar and you place it on your shoulders beneath the stones, because you're carrying rocks on your shoulders, just like that. Take that off, place it on your shoulder, and that will make it easier to carry. Right? And so what happened? Rasulullah removed this izar of his, placed it on his shoulders, and immediately he fell down unconscious. Immediately he fell down unconscious. And Jabir says, فَمَا رُؤِيَ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ عُرْيَانًا After that happened, he was never ever seen unclothed. He was never ever seen naked. But this was only on the instruction of his uncle that he did it. And after this, as if Allah did not want this for him, immediately he fell down unconscious. And Jabir says, he did not, he was never seen to be uncovered after that ever again. In another wording of the hadith, um, Abbas says to him, put your izar on your shoulder, right? And when he did this, he fell down to the earth. He fell down and his eyes went up into the he- to face, looking up to the heavens and he said, Arini izari fashaddahu alayhi. He said immediately, give me my izar. And he covered himself with it immediately. So for a brief moment, his body was uncovered and immediately he fell down. You know, fell down to the ground and he immediately asked for his izar and he covered himself up with this. So what then happens was is they continue building and when they reach the place of the Hajarul Aswad. Al-Hajarul Aswad. Al-Hajarul Aswad is the the best and the most pure of all stones on this dunya. And many virtues have been mentioned about the Hajar al-Aswad. In fact, even touching it and kissing the Hajar al-Aswad is a sunnah. Right? There are a hadith that speak about this. One hadith says that indeed this Hajar, this stone, has a tongue and two lips. It will bear witness on the day of Qiyamah for whomsoever touches it truthfully. It will bear witness. Uh, for the, the believers who touched it truthfully, the, the Hajar al-Aswad will speak and be a witness for them on the day of Qiyamah. This is one example. In another hadith, touching the Hajar, the black stone, and the Rukn Yamani, hattan. It removes your sins. It removes your sins in a great way. Understand? So there are various virtues for this. We know it's also a sunnah to kiss the Hajar al-Aswad if you are able to do that. Right? 
So when they got to the Hajar al-Aswad, the black stone, what then happened was is, now the dispute started. Initially everything was okay. Each person took a side, each tribe as we said took a side. When they got to the black stone, there's only one stone. And it's only one stone that you can't all share in the placing of the black stone. Now they started to dispute with one another. Each tribe wanted a she. He wanted his people. They wanted their people to be the one who placed the black stone. Right? Until, you know, this dispute led until it, it, it flared up so badly that there was, they were on the verge of bloodshed in the haram. It flared up, you know, and it became on the verge of violence. And so Banu Abdiddar, one of the tribes, one of the tribes, they come and they bring a bowl. They bring a bowl that's full of blood. And they dip their hands in the bowl and they make a pact with some of the other tribes, like Banu, Banu Adi. And what's the pact? We are going to fight until we die. But we are going to be the one who, the ones who are going to place the black stone. And the others come and they're ready to dip their hands in and they're ready to, to fight. Because they are, they are adamant and they are firm that they are the ones who want to place the black stone. Remember? This was their nature. Remember we spoke about this, how they are easy to go to war. Sometimes they went to war for amusement. So for this, something serious, they were ready to die. So this was a sign, a symbol of the resolution. That this guy, they bring a bowl, put your hand in the blood, and this is a sign that you are ready. So this was about to happen, and for some time they waited. Until Allah Azza wa Jal inspired one of the intelligent ones, who was Abu Umayyah ibn al-Mughirah al-Makhzumi. This was the, the, the father of Ummul Mu'mineen, Umm Salama radiallahu anha. She eventually becomes the wife of the Prophet sallallahu later on, Umm Salama. So it's her father, her father, Abu Umayyah, was an intelligent man. He was also the oldest amongst them. He was the most senior of them. So he comes forward and he says, Oh Quraysh, take this differences and let's settle it in a different way. This is not, what's the point of fighting over this, right? It's something sacred, something good that we are doing. There's no point in fighting and killing each other over this. So he comes with his hikmah and he says, take these differences and let's do something else. And he says, the first person who enters from the door, Bab Bani Shaybah, Bab Bani Shaybah, that's the one that we choose. Let's sit and wait. And whosoever enters on that door first, we, 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 we choose him to be the one that will place the black stone. Bab Bani Shayba today is known as? What's it known as today? Bab As-Salam. Today it's referred to as Bab As-Salam. Back then they called it Bab Bani Shayba. Okay? So who is, so the, the, they agree on this. He reasoned with them. He was old. He was elderly. He went hikmah. And they understood this, what he was saying. And they accepted this. Who then comes? All of the Quraysh is now sitting and watching this door. 
Bani Shaiba. And everybody's watching and watching and waiting in anticipation to see who's going to be the one who enters through this door first. فَإِذَا بِهِ الصَّادِقُ الْأَمِينَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ Who was it? There comes الصَّادِقُ الْأَمِينَ The truthful one. الأمين. He comes and he enters. And it was if, as if Allah Azza wa Jal sent him. He sent him specifically at this moment to stop the Quraysh from this evil that they were about to do of killing each other and fighting over the black stone. So when they saw him, they said, هذا الأمين رضينا هذا محمد. They said, this is Al-Amin and we are pleased with him. This is Muhammad, we are happy. All of them. Because they loved him. This is before Prophet would remember, they were all happy with him as a person, they knew he was the best of people. So immediately, they became pleased with this and they agreed that it will be him that will place the black stone. When he comes to them, they then inform him. Remember, he's not of the, the elderly. So he was not part of these discussions. When he comes, they now inform him and say, this is what had happened. And this is what we decided. So we are handing this over to you. We are handing this over to you. And so he says, Bring me a thawb. Bring me my thawb. And he takes it and he places the hajar al-aswad with his blessed hands inside of this garment of his. And then he says, let a person from each tribe take a part of this garment. And then let all of us raise it up together. So he takes a, a garment, puts the black stone inside, and has a representative of each tribe come stand around the garment and take a hold of this garment. And then each, all of them basically get to lift it up together. So they do this until it gets to the position of the Hajar al-Aswad and he then takes it with his blessed hands and he places it onto the Kaaba. And he then places it onto the Kaaba. This was the intelligence of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And this is how he prevented this great fitna. This was the building of the Kaaba and a prevention of a great fitna. Because now, they're all happy. This is what they wanted. They wanted that none of them wanted to lose that, you know, lose a part of it. We all want a part of placing the black stone. This, is what they, this was the argument. But how is it going to happen? When they decided it will be done like this, we will choose the one who enters the door, it was him. So they said, khalas, we're happy. With him, we trust him. Everybody trusts him. Everybody's fond of him. So we'll take it. And then he comes with his own. He could have easily just taken the Hajar al-Aswad and placed it where he, you know, at the place where it was supposed to be. But the intelligence and the hikmah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was such. That it was hikmah above hikmah. It was beyond his years of hikmah. Another youngster would have taken it and placed it. He said, Alhamdulillah, we did this job. You know, Allah accepted from us, etc. But this was his hikmah that Allah gave him. And this prevented a major fitna. And after this, everybody's happy. Nobody had any complaints, no issues. Walhamdulillah. So this is what happened. And the black stone has then been placed by the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa However, remember we said they only used halal monies 
an income for this building of the Kaaba. Any haram income was not allowed to be used. This was the agreement. So what then happened was is they spent all of the halal money building up the Kaaba. But when they came to the northern side of the Kaaba, there was not enough money. They did not have enough money to complete the structure. To complete the structure. So what did they do? They, they cut it smaller. They, they, they pulled the, the wall in basically. And the original foundation, they just left it at the height of the foundation. You understand? So that wall they brought closer. And the original foundation which was there from the time of Ibrahim salam, they left it there. But they did not build up, all the way up. And that is what we know today as the Hijr Ismail. Right? That is therefore a part of the Kaaba. Initially it was built up, all the way up. But because they didn't have the money and the halal income and they stuck to the agreement, this is why it became only the small hall that you see today. And that's how it stayed. That's how it stayed. You understand? This is what we call, this is what is known as the Al-Hijr, right? Or the Hijr Ismail, as people call it. So the Sheikh, he says that the Kaaba was about nine cubits in, in height in the time of Ibrahim, alayhi salam. It had two doors. The Kaaba had two doors, a door to the east and a door to the west. Right, so whomsoever came in by one side, he could go out the other side. So people could basically pass through the Kaaba. This is how it was. When the Quraysh built it, when the Quraysh rebuilt the Kaaba, what did they do? They added another nine cubits. So it became double the size in terms of the, of the height. It now became double the size in terms of the height. And they also limited the Kaaba to one door. So they took away the, the second door. They built it closed. But they limited it to one door. And they raised this door high up above the, the ground. So initially it was not like that. It was ground level. People can walk in and walk out the other side. But the Quraysh, what did they do? They raised it up. High up. So if you stand in front of the Kaaba today, the door is just above our head height. Right? It's above our head height. So it's maybe two, just over two meters up. And so forth. So they raised it up. For what reason? So that only they can choose who goes in. And who, you understand? Nobody can just go in. They control it now. And so nobody can just walk in. It's high up. If you're you to get in there, you need to bring some stones or a ladder or something to get in. So the Quraysh wanted it like this, that only they can allow certain people in. And if they don't want you to go in, you will not go in. You understand? There's a hadith in Bukhari and Muslim from Aisha radiallahu anha that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said to Aisha, he said, oh Aisha, were it not that your people recently left Jahiliyyah, I would have ordered that the house be demolished again. And I would have incorporated into it what they left out of it. And I would have leveled it to the ground. 
The door, referring to the door. Right? And I would have again placed two doors on it. The door of the east and the west. Right? And I would have فَبَلَغْتُ بِي أَسَاسِ إِبْرَاهِيمِ Okay? That those would have been upon the, the, the asas of Ibrahim alayhi salam. The foundation of Ibrahim alayhi salam. So what is he saying? He says, had it not been that the people just accepted Islam, they just recently left Jahiliyyah, I would have instructed that they demolish the Kaaba again and then build it the way it was. Not the way the Quraysh made it. The way that it was with two doors. And the doors are ground level, not high up like the way they had made it. But because he knew that it's going to become a, a problem and a fitna and another war, yes. He foresaw this and therefore he says to Aisha, this is not what we are going to, what he's going to do. In fact, in another hadith, also in Bukhari and Muslim, she says, I asked Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallama anil jadr amin al-bayti huwa. So he said, yes, the jadr is the, the, the hijr of Ismail, right? So he says, is it from the Kaaba? And he says, yes, meaning it's a part of the Kaaba. So she said, why is it that people do not enter the door or enter, enter it into the Kaaba? Why, why don't they make it a part of the Kaaba? Remember, who was asking this question? Aisha. Aisha was a young girl. She was not alive when all of these things were happening. You understand? So this is some time later. So she's asking, is this part of the Kaaba? He says, yes. So why is it? Why did he not build it? You know, with in a part of the Kaaba. Why is it like this separated? Or, or looks like it's separated. And so the, the Prophet says, it's indeed your people, they, they were short of money. They were short of nafaqah. So she says, and why is the door so high? Why is, what's up with the door being so high? And so he says, again, your people, they did this so that they can control who goes in and who does not go in. They can decide who they will allow to enter and who will not be allowed to enter. And then he said, were it not that your people recently left Jahiliyyah? And I, I feared, whether I feared, were it not that I feared, and it would, it would break their hearts. I would incorporate the hijr into the house once again. Into the house, into the Kaaba once again. And I would bring the other door or at least level the door down to the, the ground once again. This is a, another different narration um, of the same hadith. You understand? Some of the benefits of these two narrations or these two hadiths Ibn Hajar rahimahullah, he says that a leader, he has to pay attention um, and he has to, uh, to pay attention to the people and he has to avoid what's going to anger them and what might lead to something harmful. So here, if you look at the words of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he is very much aware that if he was to do this now, the people just left Jahiliyyah. This might anger them. This might break their hearts. This was their actions and the actions of their fathers. And this might lead to a bigger harm and a bigger fitna. You understand? So for this reason, 
He left it as it is. He decided to leave it as it is. In the hadith is also an instruction to unite the hearts. Let's keep people united. Right? This is something that is compulsory. Let's keep it united. Also, the hadith teaches us to start with what's most important and then move on to what's less important. We start from al-aham fal-aham. From the most important to the next. From the most important to the, the next. This hadith teaches us this. So, when it comes to avoiding detriment, mafsada, some harm, some evil, some bad, this takes precedent over acquiring some benefit or bringing about some benefit. So when we are weighing up the options, for example, okay, so it's a benefit to do this, to, to you know, build the two doors, to level the, the, the doors. It's benefit. But what's the harm? There's a lot of harm. And that harm, we say it takes preference, meaning let's rather avoid the harm than bring about some, some benefit. You understand? Simple example I'll give in today's time. Many scholars are of the opinion that the green dome in al Madina is not sunnah. That there's a dome built upon the, upon the grave of the Prophet Right? So many of them say, Islamically speaking, the dome should be, should be removed, should be demolished. That dome was not built by the Prophet It was only built by the Ottomans many, many, many years later. So many scholars say it should be removed because it brings about a benefit. But what's the harm that will come by removing it? What's the harm that will come by demolishing it? A huge fitna will, will come about. So hence they say, even though ideally we should have it removed, we'll rather keep it to avoid the bigger mafsada, the bigger harm, the bigger detriment. This is what the Sharia teaches us. We weigh up the pros and the cons. We weigh up the maslaha and the mafsada. And if there's mafsada, we should rather keep it away from the mafsada. Let's rather, if we know there's a great mafsada that will come, then we rather cut out the, the maslaha that it will bring. Cut out the benefit and just keep it as it is. To avoid bringing about the harm. So this hadith also teaches us um, this principle. Understand? With some other benefits and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Are there any questions on the building of the Kaaba, placing of the black stone, and what the Prophet ﷺ has said about the Kaaba? Yes? No. Originally it was white. Originally it was said to be white. But because of all of the sins of insan, it has become black. This is what has been mentioned and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Allahu A'lam. I believe so. Because they couldn't get it out. When he tried to remove it, you know, there was a, it shook and so forth. Tayyib. The next topic that the author then moves on to is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam from the filth of jahiliyyah. How Allah protected the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam from the filth of jahiliyyah. So he says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, his life was an honorable and a noble life up until prophethood. 
So we're talking before prophethood still. He was not known for any lapse, nor was he known for any major issues or mistakes. One could not count any fault against him as a person before prophethood. And indeed, Rasulullah he grew up as a youngster under this, the care of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah had a special way of dealing with him and a special care for him. And indeed, Allah preserved him and protected him from the, the filth of jahiliyyah and all the, the, the immoralities that was done during jahiliyyah. This was for what reason? To preserve him, to keep him in a pure state for what's going to come. What was going to come in his life of, of nobility and of karama, of miracles and of the risala, the message that was going to reach him. For this reason, Allah protected him from young. I understand? Up before until prophethood, this is how he was protected by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from all of that. Until he, came, he was known amongst his people as the best of them. Muru'atan. In his manhood, in his virility, he was the best. He was the best in character, the most noble in descent, in his lineage. He was the best of neighbors and the best in terms of his forgiving and forbearing nature. The most truthful in speech and the most trustworthy of all when it came to amana and fulfilling his amana. And he was also the furthest away from any type of immorality or any type of akhlaq that would ruin his reputation. He was the furthest of people away from this. And this is why he was known as Al-Amin. This is why he became known as Al-Amin. So, firstly, we look at how Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam he hated idols. He hated idols. He was brought up Aqeedah Salima. He was never ever into shirk. Even though the people around him or worshipping other than Allah. We saw from his own grandparents, right? We saw from the, the actions of Abu, uh, Abdul Muttalib, many things that he did that was from shirk. We saw this, right? But the Prophet wasallam, he didn't grow up like this. Allah kept him away from this. He was someone who was deep in thought. He was true in his belief. And he did not submit to any of the falsehoods that was, that was done. From the people in Jahiliyyah. He did not prostrate to an idol ever. Nor did he rub it seeking any blessing or protection. Nor did he go to any other fortune tellers. Or any of these people that was you know, doing witchcraft and so forth. He never ever went to any of these things. Or these people. But rather he hated this. He detested it severely. Right? He detested it severely. A hadith in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad with an authentic chain from Urwah ibn Zubair. He says that one of the neighbors of Khadija binti Khawailid radiallahu anhuma mentioned that he heard the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa saying to Khadija one day, Oh Khadija, Wallahi la a'budul lat, Wallahi la a'budul uzza abadan. He said to Khadija, by Allah, I never worshipped Allah. 
And I will never worship Al-Uzza ever. Emphatically saying those were the main idols of the time. That the people were worshipping Allah and Al-Uzza. Which Allah speaks about in the Quran. أَفَرَأَيْتُمُ اللَّاتَ وَالْعُزَّى He says emphatically to Khadija, By Allah, I never worship them and I will never worship them ever. So Khadija says to him, Leave Allah and leave Al-Uzza. Leave them. There's no need for you. No, you don't need them. And we look at the hadith of Bahira. We spoke about when he met Bahira. Right? The, the monk on the travel with Abu Talib. And in this narration, Abu uh, Bahira says to him, uh, He swears by Bahira says to him, by Allah and Al-Uzza, please answer what I'm going to ask you about. Answer what I'm going to ask you about. And why did Bahira swear by these things? This is what he knew, a custom, that this was the Arabs. He knew that they swear by Allah and Al-Uzza all the time. So he swore by Allah and Al-Uzza when he spoke to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And then he said to him, do not ask me by the right of Allah and Al-Uzza for anything. When you ask me, don't ask me by Allah and Al-Uzza. This was the response of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. فَوَاللَّهِ مَا أَبْغَضُّ شَيْءٍ قَطْ بُغْضِ لَهُمَا I don't detest or hate anything like my hatred for those things. For Allah and Al-Uzza. This is the response from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is how much he was upon fitrah. This is how Allah created him. Naturally inclined to worshipping his maker. And not to worshipping idols or anything that's false. Another hadith in Nasa'i from Zayd ibn Haritha. He said, there was two idols made of copper. They were called Isafun and Na'ilah. Isaf and Na'ilah. What the people would do was is, they would make tawaf around the Kaaba and they would rub these idols, these copper idols that they had. Na'ilah and Isaf. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was making tawaf one day and Zayd says, I made tawaf with him. And when we came to, we passed by these idols, masahtu bihi. Zayd says, I rubbed them. I rubbed them, the idols. And so Rasulullah said, don't touch them. Do not touch these idols. So Zayd says, we continued making tawaf. And so I said to myself, I'm going to touch it again. I'm going to rub them again to see what's going to happen. That's what Zayd told himself. And so when we passed by them, he rubbed his idols again. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, don't touch them. Did I not forbid you? Did you not hear me? And so Zayd said, by the one who honored him, swearing by Allah, by the one who honored him, and by the one who sent the book to him, I did not, or he did not touch any idol. He never touched a single idol until Allah Azza wa Jal honored him, honored him by which he honored him and by which he sent down upon him. So Zayd emphatically says, this man by Allah, he never ever touched an idol until prophethood came, meaning from before. He never touched it until Allah honored him by which he honored him, which was what Allah sent down upon him of the, of the Qur'an. So this is the, the main point, is how Allah preserved his belief, kept him pure in his aqidah before he became a prophet. 
and the, 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 the fault of the Jahiliyyah beliefs did not affect him um, growing up. Another point is he disliked poetry, or at least certain types of poetry. Um, the poet, or poetry to him, he, or should we say he was not known for poetry. Never ever did he recite a line of poetry, nor any qasida, nor did he try to do this. Why? Because it's not befitting, nor is it in harmony with the, the status of nubuwa, of prophethood. A, pro, a prophet should not be a poet. A prophet should not be that, that person. Um, and also, the poets were not known to be righteous people. They were not known to be people with the best of akhlaq and the best of lifestyles. And so it's not surprising the author says that Allah Azza wa kept him away from this, from becoming a poet or becoming a person who was known for, for poetry. In fact, the Quran says, وَمَا عَلَّمْنَاهُ الشِّعْرَ وَمَا يَنْبَغِيلَهُ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we did not teach him any type of poetry, nor is it befitting for him. We did not teach him any type of poetry, nor is it befitting for him. What surah is that? Surah Yasin. Surah Yasin, verse 69. Allah mentions that he was not a poet, nor did we teach him any type of, of poetry. <coughs> In fact, there's a hadith that says, uh, if somebody asked Aisha, how was it with the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam? Was it did you ever hear? Was it ever that he would recite poetry? Do you ever hear poetry from him? So Aisha says it was the most hated of speech to him. It was the most hated of speech to him. But the point is that we know that they were poets, and we know that they were poets that Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam used to listen to. So he was not a poet himself, but at times he would listen to poetry. At times he would. Listen to some of the beautiful poetry, poetry that contains hikmah, that contains wisdom in it, contains lessons in it. And some of his sahaba used to recite for him and he would listen and enjoy it. Understand? As he said in the hadith, إِنَّ مِنَ الْبَيَانِ لَسِحْرَ وَإِنَّ مِنَ الشِّعْرِ حَكْمَةِ Meaning that indeed is a type of, some type of eloquence has a type of magic. Eloquence has a type of Magic, it can, con- it can confuse people, it can convince people. And also he said, that is a type of shi'r, of poetry that has hikmah in it, that has wisdom in it. Right? So, how do we reconcile? Basically we say, poetry is permissible as long as it's good poetry. And as long as it doesn't take up too much time. Should be a thing on the side here and there, now and then. But otherwise, it's not something that you do all the time or something that you keep yourself busy with too much. Especially when it comes to listening. As for Rasulullah he was not a poet. Nor was he someone who even tried to do poetry. It was not for him. And it was not befitting for him either, as Allah Azza wa Jal says. There's a hadith where he said to Hassan ibn Thabit, Uhujul mushrikeen fa inna Jibreel ma'ak. Abuse the mushrikeen with your poetry. Because Jibreel is with you. Hassan ibn Thabit was the famous poet of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would stand up and defend him with his poetry. If people would speak bad about him, Hassan would stand up and speak good about him and stand up for him and defend him and so forth. Radiallahu anhu. Um, 
Hassan ibn Thabit lived for 60 years in Jahiliyyah and for 60 years in Islam. 60 years in Jahiliyyah and 60 years in Islam and he died in the Khilafah of Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan radiallahu an. Then the author says, he did not drink any alcohol nor did he come close to Fahisha. Fahisha means immorality in this instance, zina, right? He did not drink any alcohol nor did he come close to Fahisha. Um, so he was far from alcohol, far from Fahisha, zina, far from lahu. You know the vain talk and the time wasting that the Arabs used to do at the time. Far from the fooling around and the amusements. Far from the gambling. The spending time with uh, magi- uh, musicians. Even though he was a youngster. Even though he was a noble person of high lineage. Even though he was from the most honorable of tribes. And he was the most handsome of people. The most beautiful of men. None of these things was a distraction for him. Why does the author mention this? Take a youngster who's from an honorable household. He's from the elite of the people. He's the most handsome of the men. He's young. These are all reasons for deviation. These are all things that can get to a person's head and misguide them. And, and lead them astray. None of these things got to his head or affected him in any way. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In fact, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he mentioned this as he got older. And he says that this was a favor from Allah azza wa jal upon him and Allah's protection upon him. In an authentic hadith from Ali ibn Abi Talib, he said, I heard that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, none of... Uh, the indecent or shameless actions of the people of Jahiliyyah interested me. It never interested me except two times in my life. Except for twice in my life this happened. And both of those times, Allah Azza wa protected me. He says what? Both of those times, Allah protected me. So one night, he says, I was with a youngster from the Quraysh. We were in the remote regions of Mecca. And what were they doing? They were shepherds. So they were working, you know, looking after people's flock and people's cattle. And so he said to his companion, this youngster, watch my cattle for me. I'm going to spend this night like the, like the others. Spend the night, you know, talking and enjoying myself. Not in zina or anything like that. But we're going to spend the night, you know, with friends and chat and so forth. And he says to his friend, you watch over my flock and my, cap- my cattle for me. So they said, yes, no problem, go. So he left. And as he comes to the closest houses from the houses of Mecca, he hears some music and dufuf, you know, the, the daf, people were playing the daf, and some flutes. And he said to the people, what is this? And they said, so-and-so is getting married from a woman from the Quraysh, getting married to this man of the Quraysh. And he says, I became amused by this, these sounds, this music, until it overtook me. And I fell asleep. I fell asleep. And nothing woke me up except the touching of the sun. Meaning, the next thing he woke up was, the sun was shining in his face. 
So I went back to my companion and, and he said to me, what did you do last night? And so I told him what happened. The next night, the same thing happened. He said to my friend, can you watch my flock? He said, yes, and he left. He came, another marriage was taking place. There was some music going on. And as he gets there, he listens and he falls off to sleep. And the next morning he wakes up, the sun shining in his face. And he goes back to his friend. His friend says, what did you do? He said, I didn't do anything. And then Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Wallahi, I was never interested after that in any of the evils that they used to do in the time of Jahiliyyah until Allah honored me with prophethood. Until Allah honored me with prophethood. This is how he was protected by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So even the night that he went, nothing happened. He literally sat, there was some music and he fell off to sleep. Until he woke up. This is how Allah azza wa jal protected him. And yet his intention was not, you know, as we said, to go and commit zina or to go and do this and do. He, was, he said, I'm going to go and spend the night speaking and chatting with, with friends. That was the intention. But Allah still protected him from this, from wasting that time, basically. Um, it's also said that he used to stand on Arafah with the people. So on the day of Arafah, what did the Quraysh do? The Quraysh would go and they would stand on Muzdalifah. The Quraysh would stand on Muzdalifah on the day of Arafah. Whereas the people, Hujjaj, was supposed to be on, on Arafah. And there's a hadith in Sahih Bukhari and Muslim from Jubair ibn Mut'im, radiallahu anhu, he says, I lost one of my camels and I left and I went to go and find this camel on the day of Arafah and I saw the messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, standing with the people on Arafah. That's how Allah also guided and protected him. While the rest of his people were standing in Muzdalifah, he was in, in Arafah where one is supposed to be. He was also um, known for his trustworthiness and sidq, truthfulness. So he was the most trustworthy and the most truthful. This is one of his main characteristics, right? This was one of his most open and his, most, uh, uh, his main characteristics. That even his enemies, they would stand for this and say, no, he is Al-Ameen, he is the most truthful. So when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was sent to the people and to mankind, and Allah Azza wa Jal revealed the verse, وَأَنذِرْ عَشِيرَتَكَ الْأَقْرَبِينَ What happened was is, Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala instructed him to uh, warn the people and to start with his closest relatives. Right? He then went up and he stood on Mount Safa and he started to call the people. And slowly but surely people came and they stood by him and they started to listen. And uh, until all of the, some of the people, the tribes had come and they were listening to him, of the Quraysh and of, and of others, and he said to them, suppose I told you, remember he's now a messenger, right? People were now turning away from him, rejecting him. So he says to them, suppose I told you that there's an enemy cavalry in the valley, that's about to and intending to attack you. Would you believe me? So what did they say? Nah, we believe you. Because you're not known for lying ever. You are never ever known for lies. So he did this like a test, you know. You, you refuse to take the message from me. He calls them and he says, yeah, I'm about to tell you there's an enemy here about to attack you. Will you believe me? They said yes. Immediately. Because you're not a liar. We, we don't believe that you are a man who lies. Also, when the king of Rome 
whose name was Hirqal. Hirqal. Right? In English, I think it's Heraclius. Heraclius. Okay? He spoke to Abu Sufyan ibn Harb. Abu Sufyan ibn Harb at the time was not Muslim. And he said to Sufyan, do you accuse him, meaning the Prophet sallallahu of lying? Before he became a prophet, was he known as a liar? So Sufyan said, no. Never ever was he a liar. And so Hirqal said, so you're saying to me that he was not a liar. Right? Before. And he was never, you never lie to people or lie about people. But now you're saying that he lies about Allah? This was how Hirqal thought. Look at the, 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 the ration that he had. So he says to him, he never lied. Nor did he lie to the people ever. But now you are saying that he is lying about Allah, about his creator, about our creator, about the God, you know. So to him this didn't make sense. And this <coughs> hadith, I'm going to mention some of the things that were said by Hirqal. Because I found it very beautiful. Hirqal said to him, um, various questions he asked him about the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. What do you say about him? Does he do this? That? What does he order you to do? He said, Sufyan said, he tells us to worship Allah and Allah alone. And not to worship along with him and to renounce what our ancestors did. Right? Many questions he asked him, like this about lying, about deception, about this, about that. Who does he call to the poor or the need? Does he, is he after the wealth? And so you ask him all these type of questions. And then Hirqal, after getting all of these answers, Hirqal then says, I asked you about his family, and your reply was that he belonged to a very noble family. In fact, all of the prophets come from noble families among their respective peoples. So I question you whether anybody else amongst you claimed such a thing. Your reply was in the negative. If the answer had been in the affirmative, I would have thought that this man was following the previous man's statement. That he's just following what others are saying. But it's not like that. Then I asked you whether any of his ancestors was a king. And you said no. If it had been in the affirmative, I would have thought that he wants to take back what's from his forefathers. So he says, I then asked you, was he ever accused of telling lies before he claimed prophethood? And your reply was no. So I wondered, how can a person who never tells lies about others, about people, tell a lie about Allah. And then Hirqal said, I then asked you whether the rich people followed him or the poor. And your response was, the poor. The poor people are following him. And in fact, all of the prophets have been followed by the poor people. And then I asked you whether his followers were increasing or decreasing. And you said, they were increasing. And in fact, this is the way of the true faith. Until it's complete in all of its respects. And then I asked you whether there was anybody who, after embracing his deen, accepting his message, became displeased and left the religion. Anybody accept Islam and then leave? What did Sufyan say? No. So, in fact, again, Hirqal says, this is a sign of true faith. When its delight enters the hearts and mixes with them completely. I asked you whether he had ever betrayed. Your answer was no, because prophets never betray. Then I asked you what he ordered you to do. You said he ordered you to worship Allah and Allah alone and not to worship anything along with him and forbade you to worship idols and ordered you to pray, to speak the truth and to be chaste. 
And then Hirqal says, if you have said what if you have said what is true, then he will very soon occupy this place beneath my feet. And I knew it from the scriptures that he was going to appear, but I did not know that he would be that he would be from you. And if I could reach him definitely, I would go immediately to, to meet him. And if I were with him, I would certainly wash his feet. Heraculus then asked for the letter addressed by the Prophet and the hadith is lengthy in Bukhari. The Prophet eventually, they eventually conquered in Rome. Heraculus knew this was going to happen. Because just by hearing the description of the Prophet from one of his own enemies, Abu Sufyan was not a Muslim when this happened. He knew that this is a Prophet of Allah and he soon is going to be owning this ground beneath my feet. What does Allah say in the Quran? Alif Lamim, Ghulibatir Rum. The Romans are going to be conquered. This is before they conquered. Before they were conquered. Allah said they're going to be conquered in the Quran before they were conquered. This was the king of Rome who said this, subhanallah. Um, from the other points the Sheikh makes is, he was a person who connected family ties. He never broke family ties. And also he assisted the needy and the weak and those who are going through, through hardship. And this is what Khadija radiallahu anha said to him. When he felt that he was being forsaken by Allah after receiving wahi and so forth, and that wahi stopped. What did, what did Khadija say? Khadija said, Kalla wallah. By Allah, never ever will Allah ever humiliate you. Why did she say this? You are someone who upholds family ties. You keep your family ties. And you are someone who helps the poor and the destitute. You are someone who serves your guest generously. And you are those you assist the deserving calamity afflicted ones. So she, this is how she described him. You know, saying, Allah will never forsake you. This is who you are. You have the best of character. You are the best of people. You know, and we spoke about how Khadija was his pillar of strength. Anha. So the Sheikh says that this, these small points that we mentioned, small things that we mentioned about the Prophet we can see through this how his life before prophethood before prophethood was the best of lives. It was filled with, um, you know, goodness. He was noble, he, he was uh, uh, humble, and he was also of a great status. And he was the best of people. This then was elevated when Allah eventually sends him the risala, the message, or grants him prophethood. This then is increased, and it flourished. All of that characteristics that he had flourished. It became even better became even more complete and more perfect than it was before prophethood. So this was the life of the Prophet wasallam, you know, in terms of his character and so forth. Um, and the Sheikh then says, this is from the best of evidences for the fact that this is, this is the Prophet. To affirm his prophethood, looking at his perfect character, he says, never ever in history have we seen someone who... His life was this perfect and this gracious. You understand? Never in history we did we see someone whose life was filled with guidance and nur and, and khayr and the truth like the life of the Prophet And he says, never in history has there been a person who transcended over his own people in status, in prestige, whom he lived amongst the way he transcended over those people of Jahiliyyah. Where did he come out of? Where was he born? That was the people he came out of. Not He didn't come out of a household of, 
you know, Ambiya, for example, wasn't brought up by another prophet. If you look at some of the other prophets, their father was a prophet. We can understand, you know, how they were. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. We've never seen this in history. Someone who comes out of a dark time like the people were in, in Jahiliyyah, it was never witnessed like this. Out of darkness he came light. Out of, you know, uh, filth and impurities came this purity, this tahara. Out of all of the issues, he came in jahal and ignorance and, and, and conspiracies and, and, and uh, superstitions comes the ilm. Of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, right? This was how um, much, how, how this basically affirms, you know, prophethood for him that there was absolutely no doubt over. This is one of the greatest evidence, should we say, that this was truly a prophet of Allah azza wa jal, right? Because of how he came out of that condition of the people and he changed the condition. Al-Dhahabi rahimahullah, he says, By Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Al-Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he was protected from before wahi and after wahi. And before zina was made haram, he avoided, he was away from zina, away from deception and lies, away from intoxication, worshipping of idols, um, idols of divination, abject, lowly behavior, foolishness, bad speech, Walking around naked, all of these things he mentioned, the Prophet ﷺ was far away from this. He was protected from all of these things from Allah Azza wa Jal. The last point that he mentions is this there was an uneasiness about the Prophet ﷺ and he did not expect Nubuwa. He did not expect prophethood. So there was a time after this where he experienced a lot of uneasiness, worry. He was unsettled. There was something, you know, his heart wasn't at ease. Something was putting him off, but he didn't know what it was. He didn't know what, what, what's causing this uneasy feeling. And so what happened was, is he had no idea prophethood was coming. He had no idea at all that Allah Azza wa is planning to send Jibreel with Wahi. He did not dream about this either, but he had this uneasy feeling. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَكَذَلِكَ أَوْحَيْنَا إِلَيْكَ رُوحًا مِّنْ أَمْرِنَا and, as, and like that we sent to you revelation from us. مَا كُنْتَ تَدْرِي مَا الْكِتَابُ وَلَا الْإِيمَانِ You did not know of this book. Nor did you know about Iman. Rasam didn't know about these things. He was just a man upon fitrah. But did what he believed was right. Stood by his principles. He didn't know about the Quran. He didn't know about Iman. He didn't know about Wahi coming his way. وَلَكِنْ جَعَلْنَاهُ نُورًا But we made it a light. Nur. نَهْدِي بِهِ مَنْ نَشَاءُ We will guide through it whomsoever we want. مِنْ عِبَادِنَا وَإِنَّكَ لَتَهْدِي إِلَى صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ And truly you are leading all to the straight path. In another ayah Allah says, وَمَا كُنْتَ تَرْجُوا أَنْ يُلْقَى إِلَيْكَ الْكِتَابُ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً مِنْ رَبِّكَ You never expected this book to be revealed to you. You, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, you never expected this book to be revealed to you. But it came only as a mercy from your Lord. Only as a mercy from your Lord. فَلَا تَكُونَنَّ ظَهِيرًا لِلْكَافِرِينَ So therefore, never side with the disbelievers in their disbelief. Don't side with them. Stand for, you know, the truth. 
So Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the point here is, he did not expect prophethood. He did, he wasn't waiting for it. He didn't know it's going to come. Even though there were signs, he wasn't waiting for it. He wasn't, you know, anticipating it. But he felt this type of worry, and as there was something off about him. So what happened was this: Allah inspired him to go away to the cave of Hira to meditate. This was like his worship. He would go there to to try to. Open his mind, you know, like relax, try to find some peace. This was also done to prepare him for what's going to come, to prepare his soul to carry the burden of prophethood, the burden of being a messenger. There's, there's a lot of burden upon his shoulders. He's bearing the ummah's burden upon his shoulders. And had he been waiting for it, he would not have been frightened and in such shock when it actually happened. And Jibreel came and shook him. Said to him, Iqra. And he shook him and he said, Iqra. And he said, Ma'ana biqahri. I'm not a reciter. I can't read. And he shook him again. He said, Iqra. And he said, Ma'ana, I'm not. And then he said, Iqra. Bismi rabbika ladhi khalaq. Khalaq al-insana min alaq. After this, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, what happened? He goes home to Khadija in fear, in fright. He fainted. He falls over. He comes home. Zammiluni, dathiruni, cover me, envelope me, hold me. And he asks her about it. And after this, no wahi comes. After this, no wahi comes after this. For some time. For a period of time, there's no wahi. And so he feels this uneasiness once again. He feels there's something missing, there's something lacking. And he feels that Allah Azza wa Jal has forsaken him. Allah has forsaken him. And people would say, the mushrikeen then came out and said, Look, Allah, forsake, Allah has forsaken him. Allah has deserted him. Allah hates him. After he came and said, Iqra, Allah hates him. And then what, what did Allah reveal? وَالضُّحَى وَاللَّيْلِ إِذَا سَجَى مَا وَدَّعَكَ رَبُّكَ وَمَا قَلَى Allah swears by الضُّحَى The time of the morning when the sun is bright. After darkness is light. Here comes the nur. Back into the life of the Prophet sallallahu And then Allah eventually says, Rabbuka. Your Lord never forsook you, forsake you, never deserted you. Nor does he hate you. Emphasizing his love for the Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And you can refer back to the tafsir of that surah. We did this tafsir not too long ago. Alhamdulillah. It's on the YouTube channel. So <clears throat> this was from the hikmah of Allah Azza wa Jal. That he chose the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam like this. Protected him from all of the filth of jahiliyyah. And also that he was an unlettered man, Ummi. What's the hikmah in this? That he's unlettered. Why? Why is he unlettered? Where's the hikmah in it? He was unable to write or read. So therefore, nobody can accuse him of making this up, of actually coming with scripture, of actually coming with this eloquence and so forth. And therefore the Quran says, وَمَا كُنْتَ تَتْلُو مِنْ قَبْلِهِ مِنْ كِتَابٍ وَلَا تَخُطُّهُ بِيَمِينِكَ إِذَا لَرْتَابَ الْمُبْطِلُونَ Allah says, you could not read any writing before this, nor could you write. You could not read, nor could you write. Otherwise, the people of falsehood would have been suspicious. Otherwise, the people of falsehood would have been suspicious. This was the hikmah in Allah Azza wa Jal having him unlettered. And also the Quran says, الَّذِينَ يَتَّبِعُونَ الرَّسُولَ النَّبِيَّ الْأُمِّي الْأُمِّي 
They are those who follow the, the messenger, the unlettered prophet. The unlettered prophet. Whose descriptions they find in the Torah and the, the Injil. Um, and that is the end of that chapter. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Next week, bi'idnillah, we will speak about Irhasatul Bi'atha, the foundations of Prophethood. The foundations were laid for um, the Bi'atha, the, the coming of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Wa Sallallahu Ala Nabina Muhammad wa Ala Alihi wa Sahbihi Ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashadu Allah ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.